We're continuing our series in the summer. We're almost at the end of summer. I know Labor Day weekend, traditionally, in my mind, I don't know about yours, uh, it indicates that summer is coming to a close. Uh, and we are one week away from closing out this great letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament to this church in southern Greece, the Corinthian letter. We're up to chapter 14 this week. And next week, we're going to be in chapter 15, and then we're going to close it out because, as Lisa said, in two weeks, we're going to start a brand new series, especially for those who are seeking and exploring the Christian faith, may not be totally convinced, uh, a series called Dear God, Questions That People Have for God. And you can see as you go out front, maybe you're driving by or you're walking by, you can see what some of the questions that people have for God. We're going to be dealing with those issues in the weeks ahead, and I'm excited about that. Hey, when we finished up chapter 13, the very last verse, and I'm glad it was a, it was a short chapter. So we, I only preached about 30 minutes last week. I know some of you guys were rejoicing over that, but there were only 13 verses, so I didn't have as much material to work with. I think there are almost 40 verses in 1 Corinthians 14, so you can kind of do the proportional math and see how long this is going to take. Hopefully not. Uh, at the end of chapter 13, Paul says this, the, these three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And if you recall, at the end of the service, I challenged all of us to that, how do we put this message into practice, to love with that real, genuine love that God has, that's not based upon, did somebody do something for us? Did somebody earn our love? Did somebody earn our trust? Did they merit an expression of love? The idea was that God gives his love for us even while we were still sinners. God loved us though we had not turned back to him and reciprocated his love for us back to him. And so how do we practice that kind of love? And I challenge you, I said, try to go out there in this world that you go out into each week and show God's love, show genuine love to somebody who can't pay you back, to somebody who you don't expect to receive anything in return. And I hope some of you guys found opportunities to do that. It's, it's very interesting because I, I tried to do this once uh, on Friday with a gentleman who came to the door of our church, and it was one of the more difficult people that I know in my life to love. Uh, it, it's just like oil and water. We can't seem to connect on hardly any level, but uh, I was just trying to show him genuine love, and it's easier said than done, <laughs> put it that way. But it's, it's very godly to be able to do that. Hey, this week, I, I want to uh, open the message on 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to talk about speaking in tongues. We're going to talk about what happens in a live worship service in the first century in southern Greece in Corinth, because we actually get a better picture of that and a window into their church assembly life than we do in any other uh, place in the New Testament. We're going to talk about speaking in tongues. We're going to talk about prophesying. And we're going to talk about women and women's roles as to what uh, they should be saying or not saying in church. So get ready uh, as we uh, batten down the hatches for that. Uh, what is the best way to build up a church? What is the best way to build up a church? I know um, when we talk about churches, there are a lot of churches out there, especially some of the mega churches that are run by 
pretty big, well-known, famous pastors, and they oftentimes will invite celebrities to come onto their church platform, and they'll speak for them and share and draw a big crowd. Um, so I entitled uh, the beginning of this, Celebrities versus Servants. Which one would you rather be? Would you rather be a flash-in-the-pan celebrity, uh, or would you rather be someone who builds up others and helps equip them for impactful ministry? In other words, is the focus, is the spotlight going to be on you as a celebrity, or would you rather be a servant and have the spotlight be on Jesus or upon His glory and for His church? And it's a legitimate question to ask because a lot of us are tempted to try to become a celebrity rather than be a servant like Jesus. Um, what's the best way to build up a church? I thought about this when I was thinking of a lot of uh, well-known, popular mega churches. Sometimes we see them on TV or you hear about them. Um, how do we build up the church and grow it? Well, let's get some staging. Let's get some big lights that make the church look like a giant rock concert. Let's get some high-powered speakers that can really boom and melt your face off. I mean, that would just be awesome, right? I think uh, Cosmos and Cos over here would probably be like, yeah, I like that. I, you notice when an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old, when they play their musical instruments, they like it a little more energetic and loud. And I, I celebrate that, you know, brings me back to my days, right? So uh, high-powered speakers, that's going to be the key. Let's wow the audience with some amazing video and some outrageous clip of people doing amazing things. Uh, let's invite celebrities and well-known figures from our society who name the name of Jesus uh, and share what God is doing in their lives. That's the way we're going to grow and build up a church. You know, that is one way that some churches are growing and building themselves up. That's not exactly the way Paul says we're to grow and build up the church. I'd rather now turn our focus and say, okay, what is the Apostle Paul, the the ambassador of Christ to the Gentiles uh, in the world, what did he say would be the best way to build up the church? Paul talks about using our spiritual gifts. Paul talks about how God has gifted each one of us in a unique way with unique talents and abilities. And he says, and I want you to use your gifts to help build up and strengthen the body of Christ, the church as we assemble together. So that's, uh, that's an amazing challenge. Uh, we get a window. This is interesting, and I, I, I mentioned it already, but we get a window into a live first century worship, worship service when you read chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. If you haven't read it yet uh, or studied it, I invite you to do so this week. Paul says this as he opens the chapter, let love be your highest goal. Remember, Paul had just got done saying, now, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, right? Let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, which are spiritual gifts, especially the ability to prophesy. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking only to God. Since people won't be able to understand you, you will be speaking by the power of the Spirit but it will all be mysterious. So he's comparing these two spiritual gifts. One of them is speaking in tongues, which is the ability to speak in a language that you do not know, that you've never studied, you've never come across, you didn't hear anybody speaking it, and you picked up the language. 
Uh, it is a supernatural ability to speak in an un unknown language. You realize we saw an example of that if you go back to the early church as it began on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first came upon the believers, 120 of them in the upper room, it came down as tongues of fire, flames of fire. And each one of those 120 followers of Christ were given the supernatural ability to speak in a language that they had never known before. And they were speaking the praises of God in an unknown language. Now, the key on the timing of that was that there were Jews from all over the Mediterranean world, all over the Roman Empire, that were gathering in Jerusalem at that very time uh, to celebrate the day of Pentecost, one of the Jewish festivals. And what was remarkable was those Jews, when they heard the 120, they said, uh, who are these guys? Aren't these all Galileans? Aren't these all people from northern Israel? How is it then that they can speak the praises of God in our own native languages? And if you study it, you'll see there are 15 different regions from the Roman Empire from which all these Jews had gathered. So the ability to speak in tongues is this ability to speak in an unknown language supernaturally with the idea that there's somebody in the audience who speaks that language, and maybe that's their native language, and maybe English is their second language, and they would be hearing the praises of God in their own native language, and they would know it was supernatural, that only God could make that happen, and they would realize that this assembly really is blessed and filled with God and His Spirit, and, he would, and they would say, God is really among you. So there's one of the purposes of being speaking in tongues here in a church. Um, the other spiritual gift that's being talked about is prophesying, and we've talked about that. We've talked about prophesying being a gift that means you speak plain truth to God's people, a message that is specifically geared toward that people uh, that uh, calls for God's direction. Uh, sometimes it, it's a rebuke. Sometimes it's an explanation of why things are happening in the church the way they are, but it's to lead and guide the church and to strengthen the body of Christ. And so Paul's going to be talking about both prophesying and speaking in tongues in this passage. Remember uh, in 1 Corinthians last chapter last week when we were talking about real love, the apex uh, of the New Testament in talking about what God's love is really like. And it says it does not boast, it's not rude, it doesn't demand its own way. You know, some people unfortunately were abusing this spiritual gift of speaking in tongues because they were using their spiritual gift, but they weren't using it in love. In other words, they were using the spiritual gift to draw attention to themselves. Hey, everybody, look how God has gifted me. Look what I can do. And they saw it as this spiritual uh, test of power and maturity, and they were trying to draw attention to themselves rather than build up somebody else and other people in the body of Christ. And Paul says, if you're going to exercise your spiritual gift, but you're not going to do it in a way that builds up the body of Christ, that's not love. That's not real love. The apostle John talks about this man in his third letter, this so-called leader in the church that uh, wants all the power in the church for himself. And his name is Diotrephes. Please don't name your boys Diotrephes. It's not a good name. It's probably like Adolf in German. So... <laughs> Diotrephes, he says, he says, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, he will have nothing to do with us. Can you imagine a leader in the church that looks at the apostle John 
one of Jesus' best friends, the man who wrote the Gospel of John, the man who eventually wrote the book of Revelation, called the Apostle of Love, where most of his message was love one another. Uh, you, God, the, the whole world will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the same John, and Diotrephes says, I don't want anything to do with that guy. I'm the leader of this church. I'm the one in charge of here. And Paul says, if you are trying to get power and attention and influence in a church and you're not doing it in love, that is against God's spirit and that's not the right way. And actually, John says, when I get to that church, I'm going to have to deal with him. So let's go back to prophesying and speaking in tongues. He says in verses three and four, but one who prophesies, in other words, comparing prophecy and speaking in tongues, one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them and comforts them. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. And do you see where Paul's laying the emphasis? He's saying, it's so much better. If you're going to have a spiritual gift, use it to build up the church. Don't use it just to draw attention to yourself. When a person who's gifted in prophecy speaks, he or she is communicating God's message to God's people. They're providing insight or warning, or sometimes revelation. Sometimes it's to the entire church. Sometimes the gift of prophecy is used to an individual. And, well, I, I have an example of that that I'm going to share in, in a little bit later in the church. So sometimes it's to the church, sometimes it's to an individual. What Paul's priority for the church is when we gather together is that each church member, each person that's here in this room today, as we are assembled together, would be strengthened, built up, and edified. It's not about somebody showing off how gifted or talented that they are. So Paul continues in verse six. He says, dear brothers and sisters, if I should come to you speaking in an unknown language, how would that help you? But if I bring you a revelation or some knowledge or prophecy or teaching, that will be helpful. Paul's using the grid of saying, what is helpful to the church? What really builds up the rest of the body of Christ? not just draws attention to one individual on how God has gifted him or her. And so he's saying, I want to be helpful to the rest of the church. You know, you might wonder, why are we talking about these supernatural spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues or prophesying? Because both of them require God's spirit in order to do that. They, they both require a supernatural ability. I want to remind you that in the first century, they didn't have what we have today. In the first century, the church in Corinth, they didn't have the New Testament scriptures. They didn't have the gospels that chronicled Jesus' life and ministry. They didn't have Paul's letters. They didn't have John's letters. They did not have Peter's letters to the churches. And, so and then now their apostle, the founding leader of the church, the apostle Paul and their main other preacher teacher, who was Apollos, both of those two main teachers are not in Corinth anymore. They're away overdoing ministry in the city of Ephesus. And so they don't have the scriptures and they don't have the church leaders. How are they going to be led? And so now that Paul was gone, uh, they didn't have a, a main teacher like Apollos either. For a time, God in the first century, especially before the scriptures were, were codified, written down and distributed among the churches, for a time, God would speak through gifted people in each local church. And he spoke with them uh, through the manner of speaking in tongues or unknown languages. 
Uh, God also spoke to each church through the gift of prophecy. These people received direct revelation from God about what each local church was to do. And sometimes it would be kind of like the leader in the church. Let's say they stand up and say something like, I, I, I sense that the Lord is saying to us, and then they would verbalize what the Lord Jesus is saying to a congregation. We have a little bit of window on what that might look like. If you've ever read the book of Revelation and you go to chapters two and three, you'll see seven letters that were written by Jesus himself to seven different churches in Western Turkey, which was the ancient province of Asia. Remember those churches, right? You have Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. I think uh, months before Lisa and I arrived here, Kevin Sneed preached a whole series on the seven letters to the churches, right? That was a direct message from the Lord Jesus himself to a particular local congregation. For example, in the a letter to Sardis, the fifth church, he, Jesus says to, the, to them, he says, I know all the things that you do. I know that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That would, not, that would not be what I would want the Lord Jesus to come tell us at our church. You have a reputation for being alive, but actually you're dead. Now wake up, Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is at the point of death. Go back and do what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly and turn to me again, right? Can, if the Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, were speaking to our church, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be this message, but it would be a message like that. And you can imagine sitting in the congregation in Corinth and somebody who has the gift of prophecy would stand up and say something similar to that. That's kind of how that gift would look like in action. You know, a lot of Christ followers say this. They say, you know, I just wish the Lord Jesus would speak to me personally. Well, in the 21st century, in many ways, the Lord Jesus has spoken to you personally. Number one, he's given you the written revelation of his will for your life in the Bible, in the New Testament. And number two, he's given you his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has this amazing ability to take a passage of Scripture when you're reading it and make direct application to your life, right? Very much like what Amy said when she was talking about communion. And she said, you know, uh, uh, the Lord spoke to her uh, when she was reading this about abiding and, and he who remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit, uh, proving to be my disciple. When, when she was reading that and she said, okay, well, if I'm going to bear fruit by remaining in you, where are the areas in my life that I'm not bearing fruit? And, the, and as she thought about it, the Holy Spirit brought her that revelation to say, well, here's some areas that you could uh, you remain in Christ more to bear more fruit. So see how the Holy Spirit works with the Scripture to bring that revelation to us. Of course, you have to have your quiet devotional times every day or many times during the week in order for that to happen. So you have to put yourself in the, in the position to allow God to speak to you. Somebody says, I just want God to speak to me personally. Well, what are you doing to help that to take place in your quiet devotional times? Sometimes uh, God's spirit will commend you. Sometimes you'll be encouraged. You'll get a pat on the back. This is the right way. This is the right pathway to go. Keep doing that. Sometimes you'll get corrected or rebuked or challenged to get back on the right path in your life. 
Sometimes you just need a reminder. This is the way. Walk in it. Paul continues in verse 12. He says, The same is true for you, since you're so eager to have the special abilities that the Spirit gives, seek those that will strengthen the whole church. So anyone who speaks in tongues should pray also for the ability to interpret what has been said. If somebody's speaking in tongues, and that's the rule, by the way, in the churches uh, in the first century and the rule in the church today. Somebody may ask, hey, I, I don't know if speaking in tongues is really for the church today in the 21st century. If somebody comes into our church and stands up and begins to speak in tongues, what does the, what does the Apostle Paul say that we are supposed to do to legitimize that exercise of the spiritual gift? What does he say we're supposed to do? Right? We're supposed to pray for the ability to interpret what has been said. In fact, later on, Paul's going to say, and if that person gets up and speaks in tongues and everybody's drawing attention to her, to him, saying, whoa, you know, what's going on here? This is, this is, this is amazing. This is crazy. If there is no interpretation of that speaking in tongues in English so that we can all understand it, that person is to remain silent, to remain silent. Yeah, you may have the spiritual gift, but we can't understand you. And if we can't understand you, you're not going to be edifying or strengthening or building up the church. You may have a great word from God, but if we don't know what it is, it's not doing us any good. So you need to remain silent. And that's a challenge probably to a person who has that spiritual gift because a lot of people may be tempted to say, hey, the Lord has gifted me and I've got to show off my gifts so everybody sees how awesome and spiritually mature I am, right? So you got to be careful in the exercise of your spiritual gift. Paul says this, I, church, it's better to proclaim God's truth in a person's language, in other words, so that they can understand it, Better to proclaim God's truth in a person's language than to speak to them in a foreign language. The second, uh, to, to, to speak in their own language builds up a person, uh, the individual, speaking in a way they can understand, that builds up the whole church. So when we ask the question, and that's what the title of the message is, what is it that builds up a church? We really have to ask, what is the kind of teaching or encouragement or word you could say that would help people gain an understanding that would help them deepen their trust in who God is and that God is who he says he is and that God will do what he says he will do. When somebody stands up and you feel strengthened and edified and encouraged like that, they are properly exercising their spiritual gift. Paul says in verse 16, as we're going through this chapter 14, says, for if you praise God only in the spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? In other words, they don't know what you're saying. How can they praise God along with you? How can they join you in giving thanks when they don't understand what you're saying? There's a principle of being understood, of speaking plainly, speaking uh, to God's people in a way they can understand, they can, uh, they can grasp it, and they figured out a way to practice it and make it part of their life. Paul's saying for, that if a church is going to work properly, you have to be able to understand each other. Whatever we have to say to each other, let's at least have a common understanding of what we're talking about. So Paul says this. Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. And I, I, I read that and I was thinking, so does Paul, when he gets up in the middle of the church, when he gets up to speak, does he just start rattling off speaking in tongues? 
And Paul answers it, and he says, no, I don't. I may speak in tongues more than any of you, but I don't do it right here in the church assembly because that's not going to edify or build up anybody else. Where does Paul probably do his speaking in tongues? Probably more in a private place of prayer. But Paul says, but in a church meeting, I would rather speak five understandable words to help others than 10,000 words in an unknown language. I think there's a, that's a great principle there. Paul's using his gift for the benefit of the church and not for his own celebrity status. I came across a great article called, a, it's time, the, the article is called, It's Time for a Charismatic Manifesto. It's written by a Pentecostal pastor, huh? Named Lee Grady. You know, why, why am I reading a Pentecostal pastor? Uh, because in this charismatic manifesto, this is what he says. He has a number of points that he wants to make about abuses in the charismatic movement, abuses in the Pentecostal church movement, uh, of using the Holy Spirit and having abuses go on in the church all the time. And he says it's time that we have a manifesto and get things right in the Pentecostal movement. And this pastor says this in his point. He says, number 13, never promote gifts at the expense of character. Those who operate in prophecy or healing or miracles must also exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. While we continue to encourage the gift of tongues, let's make sure that we don't treat it like it's some kind of badge of superiority. This is one of their pastors saying that. I thought it was remarkable. Let's make sure that the gift of tongues is not used or treated like some kind of badge of superiority. The world needs to see our love, not our glossolalia. Glossolalia is the Greek word for speaking in tongues. And I thought, amen, Pastor Lee Grady. So Paul goes on. He says, you see, speaking in tongues is a sign. It's for believers, not for unbelievers. Okay, I'm going to skip that part because time is running short and I'm moving on. So I'm, we're going to go down to verse 25. And it's going to talk about speaking in tongues versus prophesy a little bit more. And in verse 25, he says, even so, there's a, there's a paragraph for you. I told you it was a long chapter. Even so, if unbelievers or people don't understand these things, they come to your church meeting, they hear everybody speaking in an unknown language. Can you imagine? It wasn't even just one person speaking in tongues. It was a bunch of people speaking in tongues. Has anybody ever been to a Korean church prayer meeting? You ever been to a Korean church when they all pray together? Do you know what it sounds like? Wow cacophony. Is that the right word? It sounds chaotic because everybody's praying to God at the same time. Out loud. And I mean out loud. Oh God, our heavenly father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, thank you for our church and your blessings on our church. Only it's a hundred people all praying in their own way that way. And it just sounds like this, this bunch of noise. Um, I would think you are crazy. It says everyone. And if everybody were doing that, and not only just speaking Korean, but they were speaking in an unknown language, they will think you are crazy. But if all of you are prophesying and unbelievers or people who don't understand these things, they come into your meeting, they'll be convicted of sin, they'll be judged by what you say, and as they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed and they will fall to their knees and worship God, declaring God is truly here among you. When somebody has a word of prophecy, really from God's Spirit, and oftentimes it's very specific, 
to an individual or to a group, small group of people within a congregation, it is unmistakable to those people listening that God is really speaking to them. I have an example of that. There's a, a, a doctor of philosophy that I admire greatly. His name is Dr. J.P. Moreland. Dr. J.P. Moreland wrote a wonderful book about 20 years ago, came out called Loving God with All Your Mind. Not just loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, but loving God with all your mind. He's very rational. He's very logical. And up until about 15 years ago, Dr. Moreland believed that all of the speaking and the sign gifts, like speaking in tongues and prophesying, he's saying those were miraculous gifts that God gave to the church in the first century, but now that we have the New Testament, those gifts are no longer in operation. That was his theology up until 15 years ago. Dr. Moreland heard about a church in East Anaheim, a church called the Vineyard Church, pastored by Dr. John Wimber, and in that church, they were operating all these miraculous sign gifts. And so Dr. Moreland says, I need to go over and see that church. I need to go over to that church in the vineyard and be able to observe them so that I can discredit what they are doing, so that I can show from my knowledge and my scriptures and my philosophy that what they're doing is really not of the Holy Spirit. So he went over there with the attitude, I'm going to discredit these people. Uh, unbeknownst to the other people, Dr. Moreland was also going through something in his own life, but he hadn't told anybody about it. So they finished the, the, the church service there in the vineyard. And by the way, I've been in this building. It seats 3,000 people. It's huge. It's, it's amazing to go in there. The church is not what it used to be as far as influence and power, but it, it, the auditorium is amazing. And so Dr. Moreland's probably sitting in the back observing, probably with his arms crossed, got this attitude of, yeah, yeah, show me what you're going to do and I'll, I'll figure out to, a, a way to tell you how fake it is or how you guys are not really operating in the Spirit of God. So uh, at the end of the service, he was invited into a, a time of prayer, say, if anybody wants prayer, if anybody wants to come down and talk, uh, we have our pastoral team down here, we have our uh, prayer team, and they will pray with you. And so Dr. Moreland went down uh, just to see what would happen. And a young man, when he got down there, a young, tall, lanky guy comes up to Dr. Moreland and he says, um, excuse me, sir, um, I sense that God has something that he wants to say to you. And Dr. Moreland's like, oh, well, here we go. <laughs> All right, lay it on me. And uh, the guy says, um, I, I believe that the Lord is saying that um, you are, are being filled with fear and anxiety and, and you are depressed because you've found out that your wife has just been diagnosed with cancer and you're wondering what life's going to be like if this cancer progresses and she dies and you, lose, and you lose her. And I just want you to know that the Lord says that, that her cancer is not going to end in death you know, immediately and she's going to be okay. And what blew Dr. Moreland away was that it was exactly what was on his heart. That was exactly what was on his mind and what he was going through, even though he hadn't told anybody about it. Certainly, how could this young man, stranger never met before, walk up to him and say that he had a sense that God was wanting to tell him something? And Dr. Moreland since then became a member of the Anaheim Vineyard Church, and he is out talking about the use of the miraculous gifts like prophecy and how God uses them in his life. 
And he has a number of examples of how God uses prophecy in his life. So I just thought I would say, you know, there was a major skeptic who in the last 15 years has come around to believe in the sign gifts are here for the church in the 21st century. So here's what Paul says in verse 26. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, now here's the window into what's happening in the church service in Corinth in the first century. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given, one will speak in tongues, and another will interpret what is said. I can't imagine, I mean, that, that would be kind of a free, it sort of sounds like a free-for-all going on in the congregation. But Paul says this, however this is done, here's the principle, and I put it in bold, but everything that is done must strengthen all of you. In other words, whatever somebody does, please don't make it about that individual and how God has gifted him or her. Please make it about how God has gifted that person so they can help strengthen and encourage the rest of the body of Christ. Remember, uh, he says in verse 32, remember that people who prophesy, prophesy are in control of their spirit and they can take turns. For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. So he says in verse 29, he says, let two or three people prophesy. In other words, in your church gathering, let, let two or three people do the prophesying. Let them do this, but let them take turns going one at a time so there won't be confusion right? Uh, the, the one who speak. it says, if somebody else in the church receives a revelation from the Lord at the same time that someone is prophesying, the one who is speaking must stop. In other words, we're not going to have two people talking at the same time. I don't know if you've ever listened to a radio program or a TV program and you have a panel of guests and you ask one guest a question and they start to speak and another one interrupts them. And then the person says, wait, I'm not finished yet. And then says, yeah, but you need to address this point. And, you know, I can't do it because I'm one person and I can only talk for one or the other. But when two or three people start all talking at the same time, trying to make their points and somebody won't stop because it says, I'm going to shout you down until you stop and be quiet. It just turns into chaos and you can't actually hear or understand what anybody's saying. And Paul's saying, don't let that happen in your church service. Let everything be done decently and in order. So the person, if one person stands up to speak and then another person gets a revelation, let one of them stop and let the other person speak so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy, prophesy are in control of their spirit and they can take turns. You know, I've heard it where people might even say, hey, when the Lord gets a hold of my spirit, and I start speaking on behalf of him, and I feel, I feel full of the Spirit. I cannot stop. I just have to keep going and going and going. Well, really? Because that's not what Paul says. Paul says, remember that people who prophesy, they're in control of their spirit, and they can take turns. Why? Because God doesn't want chaos. He doesn't want a cacophony in the middle of a church service. He wants order. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace as in all the meetings of God's holy people. So I think I've talked enough about prophesying and speaking in tongues, and maybe that'll happen in our church uh, in the 21st century. Maybe it won't. But here's something that could also be happening in the church, and it has to do with women. And I know you women who read chapter 14 
You were waiting until I got to this point because it's an important point to make. So now he's talking about women. Remember the principle. God wants everything be done decently and in order. God doesn't want more than one person speaking at a time, right? So in this context, Paul's saying women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Now, I can see any, any man or woman reading that and looking at that in the 21st century and saying, what in the world is Paul talking about? Is he saying that women, when they come into a church meeting, that they're not allowed to talk at all? Uh, I don't think Paul's saying that at all. I think what, uh, well, let me tell you what I, I'll share with you what I think he's not saying, and then I'll share with you what I think Paul is saying. The most popular view today among those who oppose women speaking with authority in the church. In other words, there is a group of people who think that women should not be teaching or preaching. And the people in this camp would use this verse and saying, this is why Paul is saying this. They're opposing women speaking with authority in the church. They're identifying this speaking with the judgment of the prophets. You guys are probably going, huh? What is he saying? Let's say somebody is prophesying, right? And let's say this is what the Lord is saying to the church. When a person prophesies, the leaders in the church are also called by God to listen to and interpret what that person is saying. And they are to judge whether what that person is saying is really from the Lord or not. Because in the spiritual realm, there's a God side and there's a dark side. And sometimes the dark side, you remember he says in 2 Corinthians that Satan sometimes masquerades himself as an angel of light. So sometimes somebody could come in with this appearance of being all godly and spiritual and prophesying or speaking in tongues, but they really don't have God's spirit at all. And so the leaders of the church, the spiritually mature ones, they're supposed to listen and evaluate and see if what that person is saying is really from God. And those of a certain view are saying women do not have the authority to judge or to evaluate what somebody says when they prophesy. That's one of the interpretations of this, right? So because to evaluate someone's prophecy, that's being seen as exercising authority in the church. I think that view is flawed, however, because to speak, when it talks about speaking here, it doesn't mean that someone is evaluating what a person is saying prophetically. I think the best understanding, I'll just cut to the chase because I know time's running out. I think the best understanding of women should be silent during the church meetings is to understand that the speaking that is prohibited here, it, it refers mainly to disruptive questions that wives, because it does say women, but in the context of this, when it's talking about the women, it's talking about the wives in a marriage with their husbands at church. So you can read wives into that women and not just any woman, uh, married or unmarried. So these married women, it said they, sh they should be silent here during the church because in the church service, there were women, wives, who were, who were asking disruptive questions from their husbands about what was being said or what it meant in the church. Now, I think uh, the early church probably patterned themselves after the synagogue. 
uh, because they were synagogues, uh, Jewish all over the Roman Empire. And the church usually began out of the synagogue. And so when they had the early church meetings, they probably followed the practice of the synagogue, which would be men on one side of the, of the room and women on the other side of the room. And so if you can imagine this prophesying, prophesying going on and speaking in tongues going on, there'd be these women and most of the women in the first century were uneducated and they didn't have a knowledge of the scriptures. So they would be confused and they would have questions and they would be shouting questions to the other side of the room. Hey, hubby, what did he mean when he said that? You know, and if a lot of women are doing that during the church service, it's only creating more chaos and more disorder in the church service. And it does say at the very end of this chapter, it says, but God says, let everything be done in a fitting and orderly way. And so anybody, male or female, that's causing, disruptive, that's causing a disruption in the church service, Paul would say to that person, you need to be silent. Uh, such disruptive questioning was also considered a disgrace in Paul's day. Remember the first century because it was widely believed that it was morally indiscreet for any wife to speak on a subject in public. Paul is concerned about appropriateness and order and that which leads to edification in the church body. Now, let's clear one thing up. Paul, when Paul says women here in verse 34, he's talking about wives. Some women were disrupting the, the services. They were getting involved in these noisy discussions regarding speaking in tongues and prophesying. And Paul said, instead of publicly clamoring to their husbands in the middle of the service, asking for ex explanations, the wives are to wait and discuss these matters with their own husbands at home. Now, we know, and I'll say this, we know that Paul is not calling for silence at all times from women because back in chapter 11, it's saying that both men and women are praying and prophesying in public, right? They're prophesying out loud in the church. That's number one. Number two, Paul already assumed the right of women to pray or prophesy publicly, right? So in this context of praying and prophesying in the church services, what, Paul's, what is Paul telling the women to keep silent about? He says in the middle of the service, what is Paul referring to when he's saying to keep silent to the women? I think he's talking about, again, and I want to make it clear, about not disrupting the church meeting by yelling across the aisle to their husbands to try to get their questions answered. So he's saying no more disorderly conduct in the middle of the, of the, in the, middle of the church service. And I'll say this, not just to the women, that's true to everybody. That's true for wives, and it's true for any two people that might be speaking at the same time, because we need to have order, we need to be able to understand each other. And I mentioned that disorder on the talk show. So the conclusion that I have in the interpretation of these passages is that, is that women are not to disrupt the church meetings, and as I say that, come to think of it, men are not to disrupt the church meetings either. If they have the gift of prophecy, they're not, to allow, they're not to use that gift to disrupt a church meeting. If they have the gift of speaking in tongues, you can't disrupt a church meeting. And you can't just say what you want to say whenever you want to say it. It needs to be done with politeness and in and, and a fitting, orderly way. By the way, it says in verse 34, women are to be silent in this particular context. But it, it says in two other places in the same chapter for other people to be silent. 
So some, I know some, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of women and saying, I, you know, how does this not be offensive to me as a woman? There's two other places in 1 Corinthians 14 where they're commanded to be silent. Verse 28, if there's no interpreter to the one speaking in tongues, that person needs to be silent, male or female. In verse 30, if someone's prophesying and two of them are speaking at the same time, one is to be silent, whether it's male or female. And then in number three, which is the one we've been talking about in verse 34, if a woman is being disruptive in a, serv in a service, let her be silent. So my dear brothers and sisters, and here's Paul's putting a bow on the whole chapter, 40 verses in 40 minutes. Not easy to do. Um, three command, you know, the three commands beside it. And he, and he finishes up. He says, so my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. I don't know if I'd be so eager after I read this chapter. <laughs> be eager to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Now, those of you who looked at your church bulletin, you said, Jim, you've been preaching a long time. You haven't even got to the fill in the blanks. Here they are. There's six of them. Conclusion, principles for us today. What are the principles for us today based on what God is saying to the church in this chapter? Number one, God gives spiritual gifts, including prophesying, including speaking in tongues. But he gives those gifts to strengthen the whole church, to strengthen the whole church. It's not just for your own self-aggrandizement. It's not just for your own celebrity status. It's not just for somebody to say, wow, what an amazing spirit-filled person that is, right? It's to strengthen the church. That's why God gave us the gift. Number two, prophesying with God's spirit benefits others while speaking in tongues, especially if there's no interpretation, tends to benefit the individual self because nobody else can understand you. Number three, since God gifted you with a spiritual gift, use it with the right motive. Use your spiritual gift with the right motive. And you have to be honest before God. God, why am I doing this? Why am I saying this? Is it for the motive of building up other people? Or am I just trying to get everybody to look at and admire me with the right motive? That's one, two, and three. Let's go to the next slide. Number four, five, and six. Principles for us today. Some people, number four, some people may demand attention and so disrupt the church meeting. This is wrong. You can't do that. You cannot disrupt a church meeting just because you want personal attention. Number five, God wants order in his church. Sometimes it means that we are to remain quiet and we are to wait our turn to speak. It's not just polite. I mean, that's just the way God wants it. He doesn't want a bunch of people talking at the same time, even if they all have good things to say. God wants order in his church. And then number six, ask yourself, back to a motive question, ask yourself, will what I say or do here, will it help to build up my church family? Is this going to be good for the body of Christ? Is this going to be beneficial to people who listen to this, what I have to say? Or is it back to just trying to get attention for me? God is a God of order and peace. God wants one person to talk at a time. Everyone has to evaluate the helpfulness of whatever the message is. God loves it when we come together as a church. He wants us to use our gifts to bless each other. He wants us to learn and grow and trust Him more. 
And as we are understanding better who God is and what God has promised to do, he says, use your gifts for that, to that end. That happens when people use their gifts to speak words of truth and encouragement, and they're unleashed to do that. And so my, my word is to you, let's all keep pursuing and developing the ways that God has gifted us so that each of us in the real spirit of love each of us can contribute to the building up of God's church. That way everybody benefits no matter where you are in your spiritual walk with God. You can be blessed. You can get something helpful out of that meeting. You can learn to love other people better. You can learn that it's better to give than to receive. You can see the ideal that what God has in mind when his family gathers together. And even when you're irritated, and you're annoyed by somebody, you can show more grace to people who are different from you or with whom you might disagree. God showers us with His grace all the time, and we need to learn to be more like Him and extend that grace to other people. Let's bow for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious Father in heaven, Thank you for being able to look into this window of church gatherings in the first century. That's where our Christian faith began. And Lord, somehow you blessed them in their meetings and they didn't, even have, they didn't even have the scriptures of the New Testament to guide them. You guided them by your Holy Spirit. And that's amazing to think of. Lord, help us to use the spiritual gifts that you've blessed us with. Help, them, help us to use our gifts to bless others, to encourage them, to build them up when we gather together. Help us to come to church with this attitude of, who, Lord, who are you calling me to encourage today, to pray for today, to bless today? Who can I help build up and strengthen by being here among God's family in the church gathering today? Lord, we, we see that you are a God of order, that you're a God of unity. And so I pray, God, that you'll help each of us to mirror that unity in our church today. May each of us, Lord, be empowered to serve in whatever unique ways that you have gifted us. May our faith in your son, Jesus, be lived out in love and grace toward each other. May the Lord Jesus be exalted among us as we meet. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.